Hello, and welcome to the Goal 4 podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. Why do we send kids to school? Well, so they can learn things, of course. Learn what? Uh, maths, English, geography, that kind of thing. Why do they need to know that stuff? Well, so they can pass their exams and get a job or go to university. I don't know. So they can learn more about the world? Maybe it's just to get them out of the house so mum and dad can go to work. We all remember the homeschooling of the pandemic and no one wants that. Well, listener, why do kids go to school? It sounds like a ridiculous question when you say it out loud, but it's one we never stop to consider. The purpose of education is an incredibly important thing to think about. It drives what is taught, who does the teaching and who does the learning, and how that learning is measured. It's the first question educationalists should be asking when they analyse an education system or develop a new initiative, but it's often the very last thing on our minds. The idea of going to school to sit in neat rows and learn what you need to learn to pass your exams is so ingrained in us that few ever stop to question it. But what is the purpose of schooling, and what should it be? And can opening our minds to this make education more inclusive at a much deeper level than it currently is? Here to talk about this is Dr. Matt Schulker. In addition to working as a researcher at the Institute of Community Integration and as a lecturer in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Minnesota, Matt is the founder and CEO of Fora Education, a non-profit company that specialises in education research and consultancy. He has experience at all levels of education, from kindergarten to graduate students, and has lived and worked in numerous countries around the world, most notably in Bhutan, a country I'm super interested in, and one I'll be discussing with Matt on the show. Matt's been primary investigator of large-scale international research projects funded by the Toyota Foundation, the European Union, UK Aid and the British Academy, as well as a consultant with numerous agencies, including USAID, UNICEF, UNESCO, JICA and the World Bank. Matt Schulka, welcome to Goal 4. Thank you, it's an honour to be here. Uh, Matt, you've written on the purpose of education, especially in the context of inclusive education. Can you briefly describe your work in this area? Sure, well, I... I'm interested in inclusive education, as you said. Um, I started out my career in special education and, you know, was really focused on the specific ways to teach children with disabilities. Um, But, you know, as I've kind of progressed in my career, I've been more and more interested in how can we create educational spaces that are for all children? And, you know, what does that mean in terms of education, right? And I think, you know, and I was really inspired by Gert Biesta's work on on the purpose of education. You know, he talks about the uh, teleological question when it comes to education, you know, what is the purpose of education as the kind of primary question we should be asking ourselves. And I think that's really important when we think about inclusive education, particularly because, um, you know, why are we including students in, in this system? You know, that bring, raises a lot of questions about, you know, what is it that we're teaching? How are we teaching it? What are the, the goals of education in our society? I think those are really important things to be asking. And that kind of brings us back to the, the kind of purpose, uh, or sometimes I refer to it in my work as the utility of education. 
And that is based on, on an idea um, from one of my PhD uh, advisors, uh, Peter Demarath, who's an anthropologist of education. He did his work in Papua New Guinea around the, um, you know, what does education mean in this particular village in Papua New Guinea and, and what is it, what purpose does it serve? And so I think for me, uh, having an, more of an anthropological background, I think that's a really interesting question that I explore in, in my work. Talking of education and purpose, it seems that it seems that here in the UK and in other in other countries as well, that the purpose of going to school is to get good grades, to then go to university or to get a quote unquote decent job. And mm -hmm. if you ask kids going to school, if you ask teachers why the kids are in school, so often the answer is, well, so they can get a place in university or so they can pass their exams, which is a common one. The UK is interesting in that um, it is a very ancient education system, but it was an education system built particularly for an elite kind of small percentage of the population. And it really wasn't until even the 20th century that uh, education in the UK expanded to be more than just the small percentage going to Oxford and Cambridge and some of the other ancient universities, right? Um, even later, I mean, the common school or public school mass education movement began much earlier in the US than it did in the UK. Um, and so that was interesting for me to explore when I was living in the UK or to understand um, the, the difference in, in how education is viewed. And I think uh, in the UK, you know, there's there's definitely a sense of the kind of qualification or, cert, you know, kind of credentialism that's happening in education, you know, where you went to school matters, you know, the, and the kind of pipelines that are built from private schools or, you know, grammar schools into uh, certain universities and not other universities, right? And now, of course, we have kind of the Russell Group being the kind of top of the pyramid, right, in terms of uh, opportunities that are afforded to uh, get jobs. But I think that that linkage has been made, uh, particularly there in terms of, um, you know, a certain credential, even if it doesn't necessarily matter what it was in, uh, a certain credential from, say, Oxford or Cambridge, you know, you read in a certain subject that may be more general or broad, but just having that degree leads you into certain paths and certain professions there. And, and you know, because education in an ancient sense was built on, send, you know, building up a certain kind of scholar, right? Someone that studied at Cambridge, studied at Oxford, studied at all, some of the other ancient universities around the world, um, were fed into a lifetime of scholarship, right? They became, you know, monks and nuns and, um, you know, into the courts of uh, China, for example, you know, that there's these kind of systems that were elite and feeding into a lifetime of scholarship. But we have, we live in an era where uh, mass education, where, you know, everyone's expected to go to school. And this is where inclusion comes back in to the picture, right? Everyone's expected to come to school, but then what is it that we're doing with them if we can't give everyone that certain kind of certification and give everyone that job just based on getting a, an undergraduate degree? Well, exactly. I wanted to ask where this fits with inclusive education. There's a real effort in schools to promote academic excellence, and it's very it's almost a very competitive process where the top students 
in the school will go to the top universities and they're the ones rewarded within society with the better jobs and the better pay and so on. How can that possibly align with um, inclusive education where the whole purpose is to include everyone within the education system where the system is designed in such a way? Exactly. And that's where there's a problem. There's a misalignment. And, and that brings us back to the question of purpose, at least at least in my thinking, is what is education here for? What is it there to do? What is the utility of an education system, right? Or to get an education degree. And I think we haven't really yet reconciled those, those uh, you know, disparate aims or goals of education. I mean, we kind of seem to have created two uh, tracks, if you will. I mean, we literally a lot of school systems have, or education systems have tracks, right? Um, but you know, I think in its in its philosophical or purposeful way, there are there are there are tracks built into the way it's it's conceptually structured. You know, because we have we have these elites pathways, right? Um, you know, a certain kind of student goes on a certain path. Um, has a certain amount of social and cultural capital, if you want to bring Bordeaux into the <laughs> conversation, right? Um, you know, and is rewarded for a certain kind of knowledge. And you have other students that we've decided that it's important to include. We've written it into our human rights documentation and initiatives, conventions, um, you know, uh, it, from, you know, various ways of thinking about uh, the right to an education. But, you know, what kind of, purpose is that serving for uh, in a system that isn't designed to support and include everyone right i you know i think that the education systems that we have today are all kind of structured on older systems that promoted a small percentage of students to a certain small set of skills and a certain small set of knowledge um and we've never really revitalized or really um, uh, radically changed that system in, 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 in a way. And, and I, I've done a lot of work in Bhutan and that is what I see there. And so it's a good case study in, in which to kind of explore those questions. Yeah, so tell me more about that. You, you lived and worked in, in many different countries, but I've read a lot of your work on Bhutan. I found it really interesting. Do they have a different view of the purpose of education in Bhutan? Do they have different mindsets surrounding education? What's the difference there? Yeah, so Bhutan is a is a fascinating case, partly because it's it's so small that you can kind of point at and see uh, strands of discourse very easily, or just like the one person that's talking over here and the other person that's talking over here, and those are the discourses, right? But um, you know, more broadly, my work in Bhutan uh, began over 10 years ago now in terms of trying to understand what does inclusive education mean uh, in a country where inclusive education is a new idea. Um, you know, it was a policy or an idea that was imported or, you know, brought into Bhutan, both by the Bhutanese themselves and also from outside, from, uh, you know, exogenous sources of, of information, rights treaties, uh, you know, consultants, people coming, development agencies and things um, coming into Bhutan. But, you know, the, the history uh, and the, the purpose of education from, that comes from that history makes it really interesting because 
you know, education in Bhutan existed for well over a thousand years, but it was all entirely in the monastic, the Buddhist monastic system. Um, and, you know, the very few people were in that system. Very few people in Bhutan were literate. Um, there mm -hmm. was no written language except for um, kind of classic Tibetan that was used in, in the monast monasteries, right? Um, and actually, written language in Bhutan was really only formalized about 30, 40 years ago. So uh, it's all very new to, to the Bhutanese. And uh, just in the 20th century to go from almost no one in the school to a quarter of the entire population of Bhutan in school is a fascinating thing to look at. But now you, you have this uh, system where everyone's in the school and Bhutan's been quite successful, one of the only successful countries in really reaching their education for all targets um, in, that, in that original Millennium Development Goal Initiative. So, um, you know, but what does that mean for them? Because they have this ancient monastic system that is uh, to its core elitist. Right? And I don't mean elitist necessarily pejoratively. I just mean it's a system meant to kind of promote only a small amount for the available scholarship positions that are there, right? Yeah. Um, so you have this system. And then they also imported this system, this quote unquote modern secular system of education from India uh, in the 20th century. And the Indian system was very much based on this kind of colonial British model of education that was very achievement and certification and qualification focused, as we discussed earlier, um, and is, you know, built on this, this kind of competitive achievement, um, fixed knowledge type system. And so you have these two things coming into Bhutan, telling the Bhutanese that, you know, by going to school and advancing through school, and if you're successful, that means you're gaining a, a, a career in the civil service. That means you're, you're gaining a better life. That's social mobility to its core, right? Which is one of the identified purposes of education um, in, in different areas. Um, and so, you know, for a while that system worked fine because, you know, the ones that were making it through the system were a small percentage. Those are the ones that had the available civil service jobs um, and it, it was fine. But now you're pushing more and more kids into school the civil service can't possibly hire every single graduate um, in the system. And you have uh, initiatives to try to bring more and more, um, you know, uh, heterogeneous pop student populations into school. What does that mean in terms of the purpose of education? Because it can't just be about human capital development anymore. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, all these things are at play in terms of you know, now in Bhutan, there's a high youth unemployment rate, much higher than, than the general employment rate. I think it's about 20% still today. Um, you have, and then, but, you know, then you have these monastic system uh, influences, you have these Indian British colonial influences, then you also have gross national happiness. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about yeah, yeah. that because that is one of yeah. the one things that everybody knows about Bhutan, right? They measure, right. they don't measure uh, GDP, they, they measure gross national happiness, as you say. Mm -hmm. And one perhaps, you know, perhaps an easy argument to make, not necessarily correct argument, would be to say, well, surely education will be more inclusive in a country that measures happiness rather than a GDP. That would be a, probably a vast oversimplification. 
<laughs> well, I, you know, and that is that is kind of my position when I work in Bhutan. Um, not being Bhutanese myself, you know, I, I try to be careful in, in terms of how I position my work there. You know, I've always I've always said to anyone who will listen to me in Bhutan uh, is, you know, I I'm not here to tell to tell you what to do. Uh, what I'm here to do, and, and you know, I've collaborated with many Bhutanese scholars that that feel the same way, is that gross national happiness or happiness as a as a goal or purpose in education, I think, is is an extremely valuable and noble one, and one that which Bhutan can teach the world. Um, you know, in terms of a different way to think about the purpose and and, and outcome of education. But like, like I was saying previously, you know, you have these other historical systems in place that gross national happiness is trying to disrupt. And it, and there's a, there's a misalignment uh, in terms of educational values in Bhutan. You know, you have a system that's promoting a certain way of thinking, right, in terms of what social mobility looks like, in terms of what knowledge you should be learning and not learning. Right. We know when I talk to kids in Bhutan, you know, they talk about the jobs they want to get are, you know, engineers, doctors, airplane pilots, uh, government officials, those, those kinds of teachers, maybe. But they're not talking about you know, more traditional or, you know, culturally Bhutanese things necessarily. They're not learning anything about their communities or their um you know, the skills that are needed to live in their communities. They're learning this kind of outside knowledge that's not really serving any purpose other than pushing them away from the villages and away from other kinds of work. And, you know, the so you have these old systems that are, that are kind of, um, you know, based on elitism and achievement and competition. And then you have gross national happiness trying to replace it, but it it's, you know, I, and I think gross national happiness means to do more operationally in terms of changing not only the words that are used, um, you know, on a superficial level, but it needs to be looking, you know, there needs to be more reform in terms of a wide variety in the system, in terms of curriculum, the way teachers teach, the materials they have to teach, how they think about the position of the school and their community, um, how schools are linked to um, culture and society and the economy. Um, you know, how families view school. I think, you know, Bhutan is undergoing kind of a shift um, or should be anyway, or hopefully in terms of, you know, rethinking how school is done. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we're speaking on the, the day of teacher strikes here in the UK. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that there could be a different way of thinking about education and schooling in Bhutan, but that's that doesn't just go for Bhutan, does it? I mean, we're, we're looking at the education system over over here. And I think that we can probably learn a lot from other cultures about what's important in education, right? I mean, yes, it's important to, to understand how to read and write and, and do your maths, but there seems to be this ever pervasive drive towards quantification and certification of employment. It seems to be going that way. We, we desire quantification and we desire mm -hmm. results and we pursue excellence around that and that as we said earlier that seems to be the issue when we're trying to include all learners within a school if the school is and and you know not for a moment blaming teachers because they're they're driven by this other these external influences and 
they're doing their very best to, to, to include everyone in a class, but also preparing everyone for these set exams, these summative assessments that everyone has to pass, huge pressure on them, huge pressure on the kids. And this brings me on to my, my next question. We've, we've spoken about purpose in, in the work I do in, in systems thinking and inclusive education, we talk about leverage points. These are points within a system where a small change can have a huge effect on the rest of the system. So you find you can find one place in the system and make a change there, and it has a sort of uh, domino effect or a ripple down effect that, that affects the rest of the education system. I see the purpose of education as one of these points. If we can perhaps change how we view the purpose of education, could education systems be made more inclusive of all learners? You know, I was thinking about leverage points and what that means, um, you know, and so I'm, I'm thinking of two uh, recent pieces I've done, one on complex education systems analysis uh, with my colleague Thomas Ensig in Denmark, um, another on educational values evaluation design with my Bhutanese colleague Kazan Sharab. And in both of these are interested in systems, but also in understanding education through a complexity lens, you know, maybe that's come out of the physical sciences of physics or theoretical physics in terms of uh, synchronicity, complexity, chaos. And I'm trying to understand educational systems through those lenses. And I think that education systems through that lens ne don't necessarily have a single leverage point. So, you know, one thing that we um, have argued both uh, with Thomas Ensig and also with Kazan Shrab is that, you know, in these open, complex, chaotic systems, you have different elements that interact with each other in unknown ways. So you have different actors in an education system, teachers, students, um, different groupings within that, you know, teacher unions, which is a big topic of conversation in the UK right now. Um, you know, but you have different dyads or triads or pairings of different groups, uh, policymakers, um, local educational authority councils, those, those kinds of things, you know, um, with different aims and different purposes that they see in terms of education, right? And, and they're all kind of conflicting against each other in, in certain ways because they have different mandates in, in some ways. You know, the teacher with the students in front of them isn't necessarily thinking about you know, the big picture in terms of what does education need and uh, are these kids learning uh, British values and is Ofsted, what is Ofsted going to stay? And, uh, you know, they're, they're thinking about, you know, why is Johnny hitting Sally and uh, why can't <laughs> Mohammed uh, just sit down? The student uh, needs some more help in maths. And, you know, they, they're in the day-to-day -day trenches, right? But, you know, the, so in a system, it's hard to think as holistically, and that's why I think it's difficult to pull on certain levers and expect change in a chaotic and complex system because, and this is, I think this has been the problem in educational reform is that, well, first and foremost, teachers often get blamed first uh, in terms of why can't teachers be better, right? Uh, in like in inclusive education research, there's been a lot of work on teacher attitudes which I'm not, I'm not necessarily a big fan of that work in the sense that it's not necessarily that teachers have bad attitudes, it's that teachers are incentivized in certain ways to make certain decisions about how they're teaching, who they're teaching, and the purpose of, of why they're teaching the certain students, right? Um, and the materials that they have and the resources that they're given, right? So, um, 
but you know, so you can pull in teachers, maybe try to train them more, but if you haven't pulled other levers at the same time, and this is where the complex system comes into play, if you haven't also then looked at curriculum and how that changes with how teachers should be teaching you, you know, policymakers think, or if the materials that teachers have aren't adequate to, to the way they're supposed to be teaching. You know, in Bhutan, I had a, a great quote from a teacher that said, you know, how can we teach 21st century skills with 20th century textbooks? And so, you know, you, you, can, you can give them new initiatives, but you have to change other elements in the system. And then on top of that, you know, the school system isn't in isolation in the rest of society, right? It needs to connect to especially the economy, but also other aspects of cultural, um, you know, societal factors, um, you know, and things that are happening around the school and around the children uh, influence what's happening in the school and vice versa, right? So if you're going to pull a lever, you have to pull, I think, uh, 12 levers to, to actually make a reform stick. Um, that's been kind of the focus of, of my work in complexity in education the last couple of years. That brings me to my final question, and it's not an easy one. Um, <laughs> in your opinion, what should the purpose of education be? Well, you're right. It's not an easy one. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's for me to say what the purpose of education is uh, or should be for everyone. I mean, in in some ways, I think it should be up to the community of you know which the children live you know and the decision of parents and families and, and you know local communities in terms of understanding and deciding why are we sending our kids to school i mean the history of education you know has seen different ebbs and flows of of why kids are in school right i mean you know in europe earlier on you know it was about learning literacy is about being able to understand and approach the Bible and, in you know, for themselves. I mean, this is kind of this Martin Luther's original idea of, of the purpose of education, right? Uh, later, it was, uh, in a sense, to do something with these children in which their parents were working in factories for 16 hours a day. And what are we going to do with all these kids running around now that you've said you can, we can't employ them in our factories anymore, right? I mean, this, this is, uh, you know, also the reality of of the purpose of education at a certain point in our history. So what is it now? I, I don't know. I mean, I think for me, I guess I am interested in promoting an education system that is inclusive, obviously. Um, it's built for all learners. It might not be one that necessarily has assessment and achievement at its core and kind of age graded, you know, age grouped or a progression-based kind of uh, education, you know, this kind of factory model. I mean, this is like Ken Robinson talked about this uh, famously in a TED Talk a, long, uh, a while back. But, um, you know, something that, an education system that promotes learning, obviously, I mean, there are things to be learned out there um, for all kids, right? But not necessarily valuing certain knowledge or learning over others, allowing kids to explore, to facilitate that learning rather than uh, necessarily dictating it. But, and, and I think it's important that, that children are happy, that they're uh, comfortable with themselves, that they learn how to interact and be with other, other children. And that's kind of inclusion and happiness kind of brought into the, the mix. Um, that they're, you know, they're comfortable in, in their decision-making. They have self-efficacy and, um, uh, are able to 
be critical thinkers and creative thinkers. So, you know, those are those are kind of big big values to to move towards. Uh, you know how that gets done. I think in a in an educational system of complexity. Um, you know, it's some of it's changing the incentives uh, in terms of what's promoted and valued in a school system. I mean, if you're basing the the kind of evaluation of a school system based on test scores or marks or uh, summative assessments, examinations, GCSEs, those kinds of things, you're not going to get a system like that because there's always going to be a, an incentive to not be happy and to not be valuing inclusivity, right? Um, so, you know, it, it, I guess, you know, at its core, this is a long-winded answer, but the purpose of education, I think, should be to develop the child and, and their, their self. You know, the Germans call that the, the Bildung of, of children, um, you know, the self-actualization of children and thinking about, you know, how they advance themselves and they, they see learning as, as a way to self-actualize themselves. You know, you could in economic terms, you could call it the private good. And then, in, you know, in public terms, you know, how do how are we living together? Like, how are we being part of a community? How are we being civic citizen, democratic citizens of of a space? What does that mean? What are the responsibilities and uh, how do we learn to live together in a in a globalized, multicultural, multiracial world? Uh, there's more to education than that, but if some of those are some of the bigger goals, then then I'd be happy to, to move that direction. Hopes for the future, I think. <laughs> um, uh, Matt Shulker, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really interesting to, to speak with you. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Matt Shulker. My thanks to him for joining me today. And thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about Matt's research, check out the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Goal 4. If you did, why not share it with your friends? You can also subscribe and listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week. <laughs>